In 2011, the grandfather of one of my closest friends died, so I agreed to travel with him for the funeral. I'm not sure I had ever met any of his family before that time, let alone his grandfather. Really, I had just wanted to be there for my friend. On the day of the funeral, the room was so full of people there to honor his memory. It was standing room only, if I remember correctly. His name was Harvey Gittler, known and loved in his community because he spoke up for people whose rights were being trampled on. He spoke up for police suspects, but also for police officers and fire personnel. He helped even in very small cases, like a local junior high school where only the girls were required to buy gym uniforms, but not the boys. Harvey Gittler believed so strongly that civil liberties needed to be protected and defended. Many of you will remember back in 1977 when some Nazis wanted to march in the Chicago suburb of Skokie. Skokie had about 40,000 Jewish residents, and about five to 6,000 of them were Holocaust survivors. And so the town council decided to deny the Nazis' permit to march. And so the Nazis went to court in 1977 to seek their rights of freedom of assembly and freedom of speech, and the ACLU represented them. Harvey Gittler, my friend's grandfather, a Jewish man, believed so strongly in defending civil liberties that he worked with the ACLU during this time and continued supporting them for over 25 years, even as many Jewish people abandoned the organization because of their support for this case. Now, you might have a different perspective or position about the Skokie incident, and that's perfectly understandable. There are a lot of moral and ethical questions at stake there. But when someone holds to their values so strongly that they will defend even when their worst enemy's interests are at stake, that's integrity. Because integrity means remembering that when something is right, it's right whether it's your worst enemy or your closest friend. And it also means remembering that when something is wrong, it's wrong whether it's the one you hate the most or the one that you love the most. And if there's one thing that's missing in our story with Joseph this morning, it is integrity, my word. Joseph, for whatever reason, did not go out with his brothers to pasture the flock, so his father sent, them, sent him once more to check on them. But this isn't a casual, why don't you go to the field next door to see how they're doing. His brothers were in Shechem, which was about 50 miles away. On foot, it would have taken Joseph at least five days to get there only to discover from the surprisingly helpful random guy standing in a field, I love that, that the brothers have moved on to Dothan another 12 miles, so at least another whole day of journeying just to get to the brothers. So he's been traveling about a week. But the brothers have been away from Joseph, away from their father's influence 
for at least a week, if not two or more because they were keeping pace with their flock? Were they basking in their temporary Joseph-free life? Or were they spending all that time griping and complaining to one another about how awful that kid was? I mean, seriously. Either way, as soon as they saw him, they started planning to kill him. And as the plans continue, they don't just want him dead. The word changes from just kill to something that includes the sense of ruthless violence. Put another way, they don't just want him to die. They want him to suffer before they throw him down into a pit. And they're preparing an alibi and an alternate suspect for the crime ahead of time. We'll tear his coat, dip it in blood, and say wild animals killed him and ate him. It's dangerous out in the wilderness. Who wouldn't believe that story? Now, you know that they know that this is wrong, or why would they lie? Why cover it up? Not only that, but you know they weren't all 100% on board with the idea because not one, but two brothers piped up against it. First, Reuben, the oldest, tries to stop them, and you'd think as the oldest of the brothers, he would have some weight to throw around, a little extra influence on what they would do and, and what they would think was right. And though you might say that he was speaking up, Really, it seems like he's trying to save face in front of everyone. He tells his brothers, let's not kill him. We don't need to shed any blood to be free of him. Well, he thinks he can come back later in secret and run Joseph on home to dad. Reuben wasn't really brave enough to stand up to his brothers. He wanted to appease them and go along with their worst instincts. Instead of murdering him outright, he seems to be suggesting that it's morally so much better to leave him at the bottom of a pit, which would have been at least six feet deep, but could have been up to 24 feet. This is a pit with no water in the desert where he'd be left for God knows how long. It's not a great situation. Then... Then Reuben could bring him home to dad because dad always liked him best. And then lo and behold, no one's mad at Reuben at all. This is not morality or integrity. This is like Reuben's doing some political spin so that no matter what, he looks good to the largest number of people. Not okay. But they all go along with this terrible plan. Not, not only do they go along with it, but as soon as it's done, as soon as they've gone far enough away that they can't hear Joseph's anguish and his pleas for mercy, you know what they do? They have lunch. They just sit and have lunch like it's any other day of the week and everything's totally normal, totally fine. They said that a wild animal would devour Joseph and they sit and they eat. Over lunch, they see this caravan of traders. Was it Ishmaelite or Midianite? It's, it's a little unclear. In any case, they're going down to Egypt and Judah gets an idea. What profit will it be for us 
if we just kill our brother and conceal the crime. We could sell him to the Ishmaelites, so we won't have to lay a hand on him at all. He is, after all, our brother, our own flesh and blood. Let's not kill him. Let's not get our hands dirty. Why not make some money out of the deal? He's family. Which motive do you think inspired him the most? That killing was wrong? <laughs> that blood guilt would be on them and that's not so good? The, the desire for the profit or the desire to protect a brother, even a hated one? Was that last reason the real reason, but he felt like he had to hide his intentions to save face like Reuben? Or did he tack it on the end? He's, he's really our brother. Did he tack it on the end so that he could appear moral to justify himself before all of them? We don't know. They sold him for 20 pieces of silver, which was more or less the standard price of a young male slave and off he was taken to Egypt. Reuben returns and sees Joseph isn't in the pit, not at all, and he tears his clothes in grief. Where do I turn? What do I do now? What am I supposed to tell Dad? Whew. Reuben tried to appease everyone, and now Joseph was gone. And all he can think about is, oh, this will really hurt dad. No one else seemed to be thinking about their father, perhaps not until they returned to him. And Jacob recognized that robe immediately and leaps to the conclusion all on his own that he's been torn to shreds by some wild animal. And his grief is so powerful. He wails in agony, he puts on mourning clothing and refuses to be comforted. Nothing could make him feel better. Could he place the blame on these wild animals? Was it all of his son's fault for not protecting their brother? Maybe deep down he was blaming himself for sending Joseph off in the first place. So much guilt. All of his sons and his daughter and daughters-in-law went to his side, but he was inconsolable. He was so grief-stricken that he said he would still be mourning after his final breath. All of that misery, harm, and pain, and for what? The brothers knowingly chose darkness. They bent and distorted themselves so that darkness seemed like the best choice, really the only choice. They compromised so many times that they couldn't even see that they were compromising anymore. Ephesians urges us to live as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. How can we tell if we are grasping at darkness? We look at its fruit. Does it bring about goodness 
and righteousness and real, sincere, straightforward, moral truth. In other words, does it pass the test of integrity to the virtues that God has taught us since the beginning? Does it pass the test of being pleasing to the Lord or does it serve a darker purpose? We are called to live in integrity and to expose what is wrong, to bring light to places of darkness. We aren't here to have fellowship with the darkness as though it is perfectly reasonable to bend what is right to whatever excuse is convenient at the moment. We have to be brave to speak up and speak out when we see something wrong, no matter the cost. It's true that we do not believe that we are saved by how we live, that we can heap up praise for ourselves by being the best little saint on the planet. But we do believe that how we live matters because it shows people what we know about God what Christ has taught us, how the Spirit is working in us. Paul tells us Christ will shine on you. So be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise. Examine your heart and your mind. Study the scriptures, pray, question, discuss discern what is pleasing to the Lord, and then speak with the confidence of faith. Speak out where you see darkness creeping in and know that God blesses each act of integrity, whether it succeeds or seems to fail, whether it is easy or hard, popular or unpopular. Let us then show up for each other and care for each other and speak out for each other. Let us walk in integrity every day, forever living in the light of Christ. Amen.